The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, you're going to hear a lot less than you would have heard if I hadn't shortened this sermon. All right, so I know you have all six seals there in your outline. We're not getting to all six. On Wednesday, Tom handed me my first attempt at the sermon, and it was 30% longer than most of the sermons I preach. I always have to shorten the sermons. It's a bit of a joke between Tom and I. And so this one was 26 pages in length. So I started thinking, how am I going to shorten it? And then I suddenly remembered it's Lord's Supper Sunday to boot. So we're only going to be doing four of the seals today. Um, So you heard all the text read and I decided to just let Gary Hood and read the whole thing. I didn't think it was good to reprint all the bulletins. Um, So we're only doing four of the seals, the first four. I have been, uh, most of my adult life, uh, a student of military history. I'm interested in it. And really until the advent of gunpowder and explosive power of of gunpowder-based weapons, I think the most terrifying sound you could ever hear on the battlefield would be the sound of of mounted warriors, of cavalry. I wonder what that would even feel like. A cavalry stampede coming toward you. And you're on the ground and you can just feel the, the ground shaking beneath your feet. Half a ton of animal traveling maybe as fast as 30, 40 miles an hour right toward you. Job 39, 21 through 25 describes God is there boasting about the horse and he does it in military terms. Speaking of the horse, God says he paused fiercely. He paused the ground fiercely and charges into the fray. He laughs at fear, speaking of the horse, and is afraid of nothing. In frenzied excitement, he eats up the ground He cannot stand still when the trumpet sounds. It's terrifying. As we come to the first four seals, we're coming to one of the more famous images from the book of Revelation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we're going to see unleashed for the first time in the book of Revelation the judgments of God on sinful earth. We're going to begin talking about that and it's going to be a dominant theme as we continue in the book of Revelation. Let's set our context so far in Revelation We've seen in Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to his servants to show that which must soon take place. So it's an unveiling of Jesus Christ first and foremost and of the future, of things that we would have no other way of knowing. And so John is in exile on the island of Patmos, Revelation 1 depicts that. And he has a vision of the resurrected glorified Christ dressed like a, a priest moving through seven golden lampstands, and it shows a a constant active interest that Jesus has for local churches around the world. Those seven churches were the focus of his seven letters, Revelation 2 and 3, that we studied. And they showed both what Christ loves and is attracted to in his church, or in churches, and what he hates or, or wants to see destroyed in local churches. And so we have that beautiful balance of, of hard work and discipline and diligence, of orthodox doctrine, of a genuine love for God and for one another that is part of healthy church life, and a willingness to expose and to, and to, uh, to shun false doctrine. 
but also his hatred for lukewarmness, for secret sin, even sexual sin, for all of these things that he discusses in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches. Then in Revelation 4, we had a door suddenly standing open in in the heavenly realms in heaven, and John was invited uh, by Christ to ascend and to go through that doorway into the heavenly realms. Of course, he could not obey that unaided, but he was in the Spirit, and the Spirit moved him from, uh, from the earth through the, the, the doorway into heaven in a spiritual flight. And there he saw immediately the central reality of the universe, physical and spiritual, and that is Almighty God on his throne. The most important thing we can ever come to grips with. God the Creator enthroned, and then surrounding that throne, 24 other thrones with elders seated on them. And uh, just a, a beautiful, powerful worship continual worship day and night they never stop praising God the creator who created all things and by his word they were created and by his word they are sustained or continue to have their being Revelation 4 then as that same scene unfolds last week we saw in Revelation 5 the creator God in his right hand there is a scroll and that scroll is sealed with seven seals written on both sides and sealed with seven seals and there is a cry from a mighty angel going out Challenging really all creation. Who is worthy to take the scroll and break open its seals and and read the scroll? And there was no one found in heaven or earth or under the earth who was worthy to do it. And John wept and wept, but he was told, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He is worthy. And he hears this, but then he sees the, the lamb looking as if it had been slain. Jesus, the lion and the lamb, just beautiful combination of attributes of Jesus and he goes forward and his triumph is the triumph of the cross and by his blood he has purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and there's just cascading worship as Jesus has taken this scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne and the lamb looking as if it had been slain is pictured as standing in the center of the throne a clear declaration of the deity of Christ And there he is. And now we come to Revelation 6. And as this chapter unfolds, it unfolds with the breaking open of the seals. The six seals in this chapter. So that's the context. And we come to Revelation 6, the breaking open of the seals. Now as we come to this, uh, it becomes very difficult. This is why many pastors shrink away from preaching verse-by-verse exposition in the book of Revelation. Certainty kind of goes away at this point. And you start rendering, hopefully, godly opinions. And you do the best that you can. And I would not say that my opinions are better than any other godly interpreter of Revelation. But I've studied other people's opinions and interpretations. And we try our best. The thing about Revelation is the big central themes are crystal clear. And we're going to see those again and again. The sovereign control and power of God over the events on planet Earth. And God's active, aggressive wrath crescendoing at the end of human history in the, in, the, in the days and weeks and months and years preceding the second coming of Christ. These themes are very clear. God's love for his people, his desire to protect his people from persecution and the ultimate destination of both the, the righteous and the unrighteous, the, the saved, the redeemed and the wicked. All of these themes are clear. The details are challenging. So two different approaches we could take to the seven seals. First approach, the futurist approach basically says not only were the seven seals in John's future, but they're in our future too. And none of them have happened yet. But these things describe the events at the very, very end of redemptive history. So none of them have happened yet, but they're still yet to come. 
It's a futurist uh, approach. And it zeroes in on a period of time known as the Great Tribulation, which is talked about in Revelation, uh, sorry, in Matthew 24. And in some ways, the, the little apocalypse of Matthew 24 is an interpretive key to the, to the great apocalypse. So you read Matthew 24 and you can get a lot of touch points from the themes that we're going to see even in the breaking open of the seven seals. You see a lot of similarities. For example, in Matthew 24, 21 and 22, Jesus talks about the great tribulation. He says, then there will be a great distress or great tribulation, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So there is yet to come a terrible tribulation unlike any that has ever been seen in human history. And that language sets it apart. It's, it's nothing we've ever experienced before, the great tribulation. So the futurist approach in that way of thinking, none of the events of the seven seals has happened. They're all tied to the great tribulation. A second approach, one that I personally favor, is that the events described, especially in the first five seals in particular, Although you could extend it to six seals depending on how you read prophetic language. But the first five seals especially represent recurring patterns of wrath and judgment and suffering that are going to happen again and again throughout redemptive history. All over the earth. But they will find their last and greatest and most dreadful fulfillment in the events leading right before the second coming of Christ. So, in Matthew 24 again, verse 6 through 9, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. But see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. Well, during the unfolding of redemptive history that God has ordained, there are, in fact, regular patterns of, I think, what we're going to see in these first four horse, horses of the apocalypse, of peaceful conquest, we could say, the first horseman, the white horse, of war, the red horse, the second horseman, of famine, the third horseman, and of death. While all this suffering is going on in every generation... The gospel of Jesus Christ will keep spreading to every nation and language on earth. Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The rise and fall of wicked rulers and the general hatred of the human race for the gospel will result in much persecution of the messengers of that gospel. Suffering in every generation. Unbroken trail of blood throughout 20 centuries of church history including the apostasy of many false believers who buckle under the pressure of persecution going on in their lifetime, in their generation. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 9 and 10, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Well, the fifth seal that you heard Gary read, and which I'm not going to be preaching on in detail today, but God willing next time, the fifth seal unveils the ever-growing number of martyrs who have to pay the price in their own blood for the spread of the gospel. So look in our text at Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? 
Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been were completed or was completed. So for the first five seals at least, it's possible to make the case that these patterns, which we most, do, most certainly do see in church history again and again, and Jesus said we would see them, repeat themselves again and again until the end of the world. But that we can expect a great intensification of them at the end of the, end of the world. In the final phase of human history under the Antichrist. So we have repeated patterns, but then a consummation intensification. And I think this is actually the best way to look at eschatology, look at the end, end time teachings. And Jesus himself, I think, gives us permission to do this in Matthew 24, 37, when he talks about the similarities between the flood of Noah and the cataclysm at the end of the world. And he uses this language, as it was in the days of Noah... So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, right up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they had no idea about what would happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That's how it's going to be at the end of the, end of the world. So I didn't take that phrase and say, as it was, so it will be. And I just lift it up and I just say, you're going to see patterns again and again of peaceful conquest in some way. We'll talk about that in a minute. Of war of famine and of death and of martyrdom again and again until the end of the world. But you're going to see all those ramped up greatly in the Great Tribulation. That's the approach that I'm going to take as I preach through these seals. Now, I do not necessarily hold that that's true throughout the book of Revelation. Actually, not at all. I think once we start looking at the trumpet judgments and the bull judgments, I don't see anything like that that's ever happened in human history. And if we're going to continue to take a literal approach to the kind of carnage ecological disaster that's going to happen in Revelation 8 with the trumpets and a third of all the trees are burned up. Nothing like that's ever happened. If you're going to take a literal approach, which I do as much as I can, that's nothing like that. There's nothing like that that's ever occurred. Same thing with a third of all the living creatures in the sea dying and the sea turned to blood and all of that and a third of all the, uh, the fresh water being polluted and can't be drunk or if you drink it, you'll die. I haven't seen anything like that and that's in Revelation 8. And the Revelation 9 just seems like a a demonic army that's running roughshod over planet earth and bringing unbelievable levels of suffering. Again, I haven't seen anything like that. So, but just here with these seals, I think this is just the beginning of the story here. As Jesus takes the scroll and begins breaking open these, these um, seals. So, I believe that the wrath of God is actively displayed every day. I think the Bible teaches that. God, we're, not a, we're not deists here thinking that God has left us alone to our own devices and things are just running by their own forces. We believe that God actively is involved. He's actively interfering in some sense. Although it's his universe, he can do what he wants, not an interference. But he actively is displaying his wrath. So in Revelation, sorry, Romans 1.18, it says, The wrath of God is being poured out from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So he is presently displaying his wrath right now. But the final outpouring of God's wrath will hit levels such as we have never seen before. And that final tribulation will begin by following the pattern unfolded in these seals. So let's dig in now and do the, the best we can with un understanding each of these seals in detail. The first seal is broken and then the first rider is unleashed. Some kind of peace. Look at verses 1 and 2. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse... 
its rider held a bow and it was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. The first thing we're going to notice again and again, and I'm going to say it every time because we just need to hear it. The lamb, Jesus Christ, initiates everything. He starts everything. Though human rulers think that they are in charge, that they're making judgments and rendering decisions that are going to to change history and all that. They are the movers and shakers. Honestly, they are ultimately the ones moved and shaken. They are just pawns in an overarching plan that God has. In Isaiah 14, as we've seen again and again, verses 26 and 27, this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? God has a plan. He has an omnipotent hand. He's running human history, and he's going to do it right to the end. So we see that depicted here. When Christ breaks open the first seal, events start to move in heaven first, and then on earth. So there's that heaven initiates, earth responds. And that's what's going to keep going through the book of Revelation. So, when he breaks open the first uh, seal, one of the four living creatures receives from that his cue to cry, Come! And he cries, Come! in a voice that sounds like thunder. Many times in Revelation, voices come from heaven that have overwhelming volume. Like you feel like John could feel it in his chest. It's like the sound of thunder and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the sound of many waters like a roaring waterfall, like the Niagara Falls or something even more powerful. And you get that sense, this power among these angelic beings. They have a a stunning level of power. Like the seraphim in Isaiah 6 who are crying to one another, holy, 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 all the time. And at the sound of their voices, not God's voice, their voice, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. These are powerful created beings. And they show us how weak and puny our voices are. We don't have the the power to to compete with voices like this that call out, come. We'd be more like, come, something like that. But there's this mighty voice. And so this, this living creature cries, come. We don't know which of the four, but the first horseman of the apocalypse is unleashed. Now, he's described in this way. He's described as a white horse. So physically, in some sense, attractive, alluring, appealing. The word white generally associated with godliness, righteousness in the book of Revelation. Like all of the redeemed from every tribe, language, people, and nation are given white robes to wear. And the rider carries a bow but has no arrows mentioned. And almost every commentator thinks that this is significant. And I do too. So there's a lack of open weaponry on the part of this first rider. He rides forth, it said, like a conqueror bent on conquest. And he seeks to build an empire, but he builds an empire by means other than the usual way, which is by conquest, military conquest. And yet, we could argue that the bow in his hand implies the threat of war. There, it's behind, but it's not openly happening. Well, many commentators, really solid, godly commentators, believe that this first horse represents Jesus Christ and the spread of the gospel. Their strongest scriptural support for this comes in the fact that in Revelation 19.11, when Jesus is depicted at the second coming, he's riding a white horse. And he has many crowns. 
And I think that that's compelling. I don't think it would be wrong for anyone to say the first horse represents the spread of the gospel. Remember in Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. We can see how Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, you know, when he said, are you a king? Jesus said, you're right in saying that I'm a king. For this reason I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. By the testi testimony of the truth, that's how his kingdom is built. So he said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not a worldly kingdom. So it doesn't advance in the usual way. So I, I see all that. That's com compelling at one level. And if that's what you want to believe the first horse signifies, I understand. I respect it. However, I don't think it's the best way to interpret this first horse. First of all, it seems unlikely that the lamb in heaven would break open a seal and then he would show up in his own, as his own response. It's a little hard to picture that. Especially since he's coming in response to the living creature telling him to come. So it's like the horses are unleashed by the voice of the living creatures. It's not insurmountable, but it seems a little challenging. More significant to me is I feel like the four horsemen should be seen together. That they're coming together and the whole package is one of judgment and wrath on, on the earth. So I tend to lean that way. That this force, first horseman only appears to be righteous, only appears to be delightful and, and, and alluring, but actually isn't. So I see these four horsemen as bringing death and judgment on the earth together. And that's the way I would tend to interpret it. So therefore, this is more of a counterfeit Christ. Looking like Christ, but not actually having his holiness or his power. And we're going to definitely see this theme in Revelation 13 with the rise of the beast from the sea. Who ends up playing an antichrist or substitute Christ role. In this unholy, this ungodly trinity of the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth. Which kind of correspond to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We're going to see that. So there is this counterfeiting going on all the time. And I think that's probably the best way to see this first horse. Now, in the already not yet, things we've already seen, as it was, so it will be pattern, we're going to see this again and again. What's going on is the building of a kingdom by subtle, perhaps even treacherous means that are off from what you'd ordinarily expect, but extremely effective. The advancement of a kingdom by sly treachery and by a deceitful peace rather than by warfare, although war is threatened. In Matthew 24, 24 and 25, Jesus said, False Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Behold, I've told you ahead of time. So the theme of false Christs, plural, repeated patterns, again and again, as it was, so it will be. It's going to happen again and again has been a major theme. Throughout history, there have been devious, wicked, sly politicians who have skillfully conquered lands by evil and by treacherous treaties, which they later break, and by false dipl diplomacy. And you definitely see this in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 11, 21, it speaks of one of the successors of Alexander the Great, a Greek king who was to come. And he's described in this way. Um, he, the previous king, will be succeeded by a contemptible person, contemptible meaning of low birth, who has not been given the honor of royalty. This is Daniel eleven twenty one. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure and will seize it through intrigue. Think about that. Through intrigue. What is intrigue? It's treachery. It's uh, being a sly politician, being able to take people in. Again, in that same section of Daniel 11, 23 and 24, after coming to an agreement with him, another king, there's a king in the north, king of the south, they're always battling each other there in Daniel 11, he will act deceitfully, listen to this, and with only a few people will rise to power. 
How in the world is he going to do that? Without a mighty army, he's deceitfully able to take over the kingdom. Daniel eleven twenty four. 24. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. So by treachery, by deceit, he will be able to take over a kingdom. Probably one of my favorite verses in Daniel eleven twenty seven is this one. This is, my, this is what I think of when I think of the United Nations, or I think of ambassadors between one pagan nation and another pagan nation. Listen to this one. I love this. The two kings, king of the north, king of the south, the two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other. I mean, it's like, how often does that happen? Like, all the time. I think about all the business deals that that describes. But there's treachery going on, but the one guy's so much better at it than the other one is. Treachery. Well, this man in Daniel 11 represents an actual little king that came, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a symbol of the future Antichrist. That's why so much detail is given to him in, in Daniel 11. Real ruler, rises politically through treachery and intrigue, makes covenants and breaks them. He sets a pattern that we see acted out in history again and again. We saw the same pattern uh, with Adolf Hitler when Neville Chamberlain went to Munich, afraid of a coming cataclysm, afraid of another world war, didn't want another World War I, terrified of going to war again, and he sells Czechoslovakia up the river to get a piece of paper that Adolf Hitler signed at the bottom saying that they're determined never to go to war with each other again. Now, in retrospect, we're like, what a liar. And he's like happy to sign it and laugh up his sleeve. And there goes Neville Chamberlain holding this piece of paper on the tarmac saying we have peace in our time. Yeah, for another 10 months... And then they basically took over not just the Sudetenland of of Czechoslovakia, but the whole country. There's nothing anybody could do. And within a year, they're invading Poland and World War II started. Total deception and treachery. All he did was buy himself more time to build up up the Wehrmacht, build up the the German army. So we see this again and again. And I think we're going to see it ultimately before the second coming of Christ. We think the Antichrist will come initially by appearing beautiful and attractive. But his heart is treachery. And so he advances and he is given a crown, and he rides forth like a conqueror bent on conquest. That's what's in his mind. Leads to the second seal, though, because the, the bow with no arrows, it doesn't stay that way for long. Verse 3 and 4. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. So again, we see the lamb initiating, always heaven initiates, Jesus initiates. And then when he breaks the seal, the living creature cries, come. And when the living creature cries, come, then the horse is unleashed. The red horse, the fiery red horse. And there's no doubt at all how we interpret this. This is just open warfare. The color red must uh, signify the flow of blood. Especially since he's given a sword. So there's just massive slaughter. So whatever treaties, whatever promise of peace and all that, it's gone now. And now it's nothing but warfare. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, as we've already seen, that warfare has long plagued the human race, stampeding and trampling down the pages of history with bloody red footprints. Matthew 24, 6 and 7, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now we need to see this, this whole thing as a picture, uh, as a pattern of judgment from God to sinners on earth. The warfare of one nation fighting another nation is judgment from God on both of them. We're going to talk about this more in a, in a, in a few weeks, a number of weeks. But 
when Nazi Germany uh, invaded the Soviet Union, you've got the, the Nazis fighting the communist soldiers. I don't know how many born-again soldiers there would be on both sides. I wouldn't say zero, but the ideologies that they represented, the nations they represented, it's just satanic right across. And he hates all human beings. He wants all of them to die. And the war just ends up a judgment on both nations. Millions and millions of Germans and Russians died in that conflict. So this whole thing is a judgment from God on sinful nations. Isaiah 34, 2 and 3. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. So there's that blood red color from this carnage that's coming with the breaking open of the second seal. Now there will be an end time fulfillment of this. The beast from the sea will be given power to rule over the entire earth. No ruler has ever ruled the whole earth. No human ruler. Ever. It's never happened. Genghis Khan got a quarter of of the land mass of the earth. That was the highest any nation has ever gotten in terms of real estate. One quarter. But this beast from the sea will have it all. Well, they're not going to give it up lightly. (laughs) They're not going to give up power saying, sure, you go ahead and take it. Initially, yes, through intrigue and treachery. But ultimately, he's going to have to show his power militarily. And he will. And it says in Revelation 13, 7, he was given power to make war with the saints and conquer them. And he was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. How'd that come about? Ultimately, militarily. Revelation 13, 7. So, the second horseman ultimately represents the bloody conquest by a final world world ruler who will begin his conquest through deception, intrigue, and false diplomacy, but who will end his conquest by warfare. The swinging of a large, bloody sword given to him for a short time. This brings us to the third seal broken, the third rider unleashed, and that is famine. Look at verse 5 and 6. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So once again, the lamb initiates the breaking open of the seal. A living creature responds to the lamb's initiative by calling out, Come. And the third horse and rider come. This horse has a black color, which technically actually isn't a color, but it's more the absence of light in some way. It's a darkness here. And he's holding scales. Now, the scales are associated with merchants in that era, the weighing out of merchandise and money. So you could imagine a a rod with, you know, you can picture it in your mind eye if you haven't actually seen it, but with, with... platters or plates hanging by chains or something like that and and so the merchants would weigh out the food or whatever's being sold in the silver or something like that or they weigh out silver against uh, standardized weights but the idea is of buying and selling of merchandise and and this uh this black horse and its rider move across the earth and as as the horse moves across the earth with its rider john hears a voice coming mysteriously from among the living creatures we don't know who says it? He doesn't know. But like a merchant calling forth his price for, for his commodities. And it's the careful weighing of a very small amount of wheat. Effectively a quart. A 
quart of wheat for a full day's work. A, day, a denarius is a day's wage. So you're working all day to get a quart of wheat. Picture like a quart measurement. And that's what you're bringing home for your family. For yourself and your family. So that's definitely famine um, situations. The barley, a little more available. It was a lower quality grain. But still not enough. I mean three quarts would be a very small amount of food. So famine honestly is a logical consequence of war. When armies are running roughshod over countryside... Farmers aren't out plowing and planting and reaping. Who could do that? You think about the famine that's going on in East Africa right now. Somalia, Ethiopia, famine still going on. Human warfare is a big part of that. The anarchy that's going on there. And so famine just follows. Same thing happened after World War II. Honestly, if it hadn't been for the Marshall Plan and other wealthier nations helping out others, there would have been worldwide starvation and a scope that we could never have even imagined. So Jesus said there will be famines in various places. But the famine's not universal. The voice that called out the famine conditions limited it saying do not hurt or harm the oil and the wine. Referring to olive oil. So the famine's not as bad as it possibly could be. Some people link link this to uh, luxury items like oil and wine. And almost saying sociologically like the more wealthy will be able to get food at that point. But the poorer people are really going to suffer. Some interpretations come like that. don't know for sure what it means. Do not harm the oil and the wine. But that's what it says. This limitation also puts some of a futurist aspect to this seal. Saying generally when there's just famine throughout a nation. Everyone suffers. You think about like in the Old Testament. No one could get any food. Didn't matter how rich you were. You couldn't eat your silver or your gold. And if there's no food there's just no food. So this is perhaps a futurist interpretation. Finally the fourth seal is broken. And the fourth rider is unleashed. Look at verses 7 and 8. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Again, like the other three, the initiative is with Jesus. He breaks the seal... The fourth living creature says come and this pale horse rides. Now the horse is pale. So I was asked this morning what color that is. But actually the Greek uses the word chloros. From which we get the word chlorophyll. So it's like a greenish tint. You could almost imagine like a ghostly green. So it's, it's, uh, you just get the feeling of decay and death. Beyond death comes this. The writer is clearly identified. His name is given death. That's his name. Like the decaying of a corpse. And Hades, the grave, follows right after him. And the horse and rider together are given power from heaven concerning the earth to kill one quarter of the population of the earth. It's unbelievable. One quarter. And, and to kill, not just by sword, namely by military, but also by famine, as we've discussed, plague and wild beasts. I don't think we really understand how much God restrains animals and birds from attacking the human race. But imagine if he didn't. And how terrifying that would be. And by the way, these sword, famine, plague, and beasts are the standard plagues given in Old Testament prophetic books about what would happen to Israel with the invasion of an army. 
Notice the escalation of horror of these three horses. A quarter of the earth's population slaughter is absolutely mind-boggling. Now, every generation has experienced war, famine, and death to some degree. But this is at a, a, a scope never seen before. The, the death total connected with World War II, I don't know how you would calculate how many people died because of the war. I, how would you even calculate? We know there's civilian casualties. Bombings killed huge numbers of innocent civilians in, in cities all over Europe, all over the world. And then there would be, you know, diseases that would have been cured if there had been you know, medicine there, it were curable, but there wasn't because of the war. So I don't know how you'd even calculate it, how many total people died in the world because of World War II. But even at the highest number, you're talking between 60 and 70 million people. The population of the, of the earth in 1940 was 2.4 billion. So that's a total of 2.6% of the world's population. This carnage is 10 times that. 10 times so if you take, as I do, a literal interpretation of one quarter of the earth's population from these first four seals, that's a definite futurist interpretation of what's going to happen before, right before the end. And yet Jesus says these are all just the beginning of birth pains. Now what follows is persecution. We're not going to do that today. God willing, next time that I preach on Revelation. This is uh, Matthew 24, 9 and 10. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. So we'll talk about that next time. The betrayal and the persecution and martyrdom. Applications quickly. First, just understand the sovereignty of God over all of these things. These things are not happening by accident. This is part of God's plan for the ultimate consummation of the new heavens and the new earth. And the salvation of the righteous and the condemnation of the wicked. So we should understand the sovereign power of Jesus Christ over these events. He has the right to do this. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He has the right to do this. Secondly, see the pattern that I've been commending to you of already not yet, of things that are going on right before our eyes, perhaps even escalating, but still the end has not yet come. It's not Im imminent in that way, though we need to be ready for death and for the second coming at any point. Still, there's this already not yet. These things are still in the future, many of those terrors. Thirdly, as I've said so many times before, 2 Peter 3 tells us how we should think about the end of the world. Since everything is going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13. You ought to live holy and godly lives. It is because of sins that these judgments are coming. That's what we're told in Ephesians and Colossians. Because of the sins of sexual immorality, because of the sins of, of rage and anger and covetousness and idolatry, that's why these judgments are going to come. So we, Christians, should flee them. We should put sin to death by the Spirit and live holy and upright lives as we look forward to the day of God and speed its coming through evangelism and missions. Our job is to take these themes out there into the Raleigh-Durham area and share the gospel because those folks don't think this stuff's going to happen. But we know that it is. And beyond this will come Judgment Day. Embrace the doctrine of the wrath of God for sin. We're going to see it more and more in the book of Revelation. It is not an embarrassing or dirty thing that God does this kind of thing. It is a just and righteous thing for him to bring judgments on the sinners of the earth. And then finally, just an appeal to you who are outside of Christ, that you would, and at the end of this chapter in Revelation 6, everybody's looking for refuge. 
They're looking for a cave to flee the wrath to come. They're looking for a cave and they're not going to find it. The time for fleeing is now. The refuge is available now in the gospel. Flee to Christ. God sent him, his own son, into the world, lived a sinless life, died in our place on the cross that we might have forgiveness of sins. Not by works, but by trusting in him you can escape the wrath to come. Now we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. If you are not yet a believer in Christ, or if you've not testified to your faith through water baptism, we ask that you refrain. But if you are a Christian and you've testified to that uh, by baptism, we would love for you to partake. I'm going to close the sermon now in prayer and then we're going to um, partake in the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for the words of the book of Revelation. We thank you for the things that we have learned. It's enough to make us tremble, O Lord, to realize the kind of terrors that are going to come on the earth and they're going to get worse than even I've described here. And I pray, O Lord, that you would please give us strength to read this and strength to believe it. And that we who have already fled to Christ, that we have been delivered from the wrath to come, that we would realize we have a responsibility to those who have not yet trusted in Christ to share with them and a responsibility to the Lord to be holy. And so we thank you for the word of God and for the chance we've had to study it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.